Now, people sat across the desk from me for 25 years. First, they would tell me, you're a damn liar. Business cannot be done this way. You're a damn liar. And they didn't even make me mad. I just laughed. Because they didn't know till I knew. Because I'd been doing it that way for 10 years. And it was all right. <laughs> so I just went ahead and did it. I'm uh, pretty soon they were coming in. Everybody in life business, we would call them competitors, if we called anybody competitors, but I didn't have any competitors. Because I wasn't competing with anybody. I was just helping my people do things that need to have done, so they won't keep. And everybody came in the last few years who were in life business. And they sit down and they say to me, uh, how, do I, how do you do these things? You know, the ones that told me I was a damn liar. Because they couldn't even build the business I was working with, you know. They'd go to see bonds and they'd say, look, uh, you're putting in this new market. I, I want to bid on it. They'd say, Carlos going to put it in. He said, what do you mean? I said, Charlie's going to put it in. Well, he said, uh, how do you know he's going to take your IT? you got to have some bids to compare. He said, Charlie's going to put it in. So it costs money to bid on these jobs. Well, go see somebody else. And so they started coming in to me. And they said, how do you do these things? And I'd take two hours out and I'd tell them. I'd tell him exactly. Ned Lee's thinking, I got his, I got his number now. I'll fix him. I know how he does it. I'll get him. But they didn't get me. Maybe they didn't get the business. Because, you see, they weren't motivated as I was. They weren't motivated. They thought they had to outthink, outperform, and outmaneuver. I knew better. Because I did it that way 30 years and ended up in the bottom of the state then. And I did it for free and for fun, helping God's kids do things that need to have done because they wanted to. For 25 years, and I got rich. And I wasn't even trying to get rich. Who made me rich? Now, I'm going to tell you a couple other things, because nearly all of you guys are still busy. And you know, you'll know very well that this is impossible. So, you can say when you get to, well, I heard that much, but she's a liar. You know? A couple of my Jewish friends at a market at, at uh, Crenshaw and 101 called Food Company. 
how these boys were a couple of young kids about your age. I had done business with Dad years before when they were little bit young kids running around the store. And uh, I had done business with them. And they wanted to change the fixtures in the liquor department. And they had an architect. Designer. Designed some fixtures and stuff. And called me and said, come down and take a look at this. Tell me what they're worth. And I went and looked at them. And I said, oh, this guy's drawing up some pretty fancy stuff. I'd never drawn up anything that fancy because it's very expensive. Well, he said, what do you think it's going to cost? And there ain't many of them. And I said, hey, by my guess, it would cost $4,500. He said, put them in. And I put them in, and they were in the store, and he had them working. They were doing a good job for him. And I had my cost in, and I had $5,700 in. <laughs> my money, 5700 bucks. And I called him, and I said, hey, do you remember what I quoted you for those pictures? And he said, no, but he says, I suppose I have it written down here someplace on my desk. Well, I said, don't look for it. I'll tell you. It's $4,500. And I said, hey, you can have them for $4,500. They're in your store, and they're doing a good job. And you can have them for $4,500. He says, that's what I guessed on. But I was wrong. I had $5,700 in those pictures. Charlie had a pocket to send me the bill. And I said, don't want that. I made the mistake. But I would like to get my money out of it. He said, Charlie, put a pocket on it and send me a bill and I'll pay you. I said, no, but I'll be your $5,700 if, that, if that's all right with you. He says, if that's the way you want to do it. Now, you know better than that. <laughs> Nobody would do that. I bailed him six, seven hundred dollars in the Another outfit that I did business with. The last deal I put in for him was at, uh, it's called Pride Center. There was four work and Victory out in the West Valley. There was a big deal. And we put it in and it was opened and it was running about maybe 90 days. Did a good job. Beautiful thing. And uh, Dave still called me one day and he said, Tony, you haven't done this. And I said, no, Dave. I didn't know what to do you. But I got cost him now, and I can get it together for you pretty fast. He says, how fast? I says, probably an hour. I can call you back. Well, he says, please do. We want to finance this thing. And we have to know the amount. So call me that speech again. And now I have to go for it. And I called him. I said, Bruce, are you sitting down? And he says, yeah. I said, are you alone in the office? He said, no, Charlie's sitting across the desk from me. 
Oh, he's your heart all right. <laughs> he doesn't have no trouble with it. But I said, here it comes. You owe me $225,000. You say, well, isn't that too bad? He says, I just moved on a slip of paper. $225,000 and handed over to Charlie for us today. She says, you ought to hire me as an estimator to send me a bill. Now, you know that's wrong. <laughs> He's got to say, well, how about sales tax? You take off the sales tax? Not a word. Send me a bill. I was in trouble. Nineteen hundred and fifty eight. Pretty bad trouble. And I had to ask the business. I had a vacant plant. And it cost me thirteen thousand five hundred dollars a week to keep the doors open. And I had to get some business, so I went out to get it. And I had five years that I thought I could get. Things that I'd worked on. And it looked like they were mine. And I went to get them. And one after another, they evaporated. But the last one could not evaporate. Because the two owners of the deal were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. 28 of the high echelon were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I will quote that. And that was my deal, and it couldn't be anybody else's deal because I'd done all their thinking, all their planning, everything I'd gotten the deal together for. Them. And it was mine. And I went down to get it. And about four or five of us went to lunch and had a good time down there at Welch's on Atlantic. Came back and everybody left. Like rats from the sinking ship. There's nobody left but Harold Hodges and myself. And we went into his office and I reached for the money. And he says, Chuck, he says, I thought you could never get yourself out of that mess you were in up there. And I did this deal to Hill. It was the last one. There weren't any more. And about five minutes later, he says, hey, Chuck, why didn't you say something? <laughs> I said, hell, there's nothing to say. And I went out and started to drive back to town. They were, their offices in Long Beach. My plan was 40 an alameda, and I couldn't drive, so I drove off the road. And I sat there, and I looked at myself for a while, and I couldn't, I couldn't get myself together. So everything had just evaporated right in front of my eyes. And I finally came to see that here I had gone out for the first time in years to get some business. Twelve years before, I started making cross-step calls in business. 
helping people do things they need to have done because they want us to. And here I ordered a print, and I had to go get it. And I went out there to get it. And everything evaporated. And I said to myself, can't get any worse. Why don't you start making 12-step calls in business like you did 12 years ago? Let the tips fall where they may. So I gave the business back to my partner and started making 12-step calls. I think something that everyone I you will know is impossible. Either knows who aren't in business. The judges will know this is no good. Where's the judge? Oh, you. <laughs> pretty good this morning when you guys were here. So, I got back to the office, and neither that day or the next, I got a call from the guy. Sam Martini. And he said, Charlie, I have a feeling you're in trouble. And I have written out a check for $50,000 in your name, and it's lying here on this desk. You don't sign a note, you don't pay any interest, we'll apply to the next deal we have. Come and get it, if you need it. I don't know whether you do or not, but I have the feeling. I said I'm going to Miami tonight. I'm going to be going a week to the SMI Institute, that was the supermarket institute. Do you hear someone get it now, or do you hear something after I get back? And boy, I'm telling you something. That was something. And I said, Milton, go ahead to Miami. And if I need it when you come back, I'll come and get it. But I want you to know that I'll never forget what you just said to me. It's beautiful. And by the time he got back from Miami, he didn't need it. The place had filled up and it was full until I sold it. Now, gentlemen, what am I talking about? Am I trying to tell you how good I am? No, sir. No, sir. I'm trying to tell you how good this is. The gift of God was made at the foundations of the earth. In my book, God hasn't got anything to give me. Not because he hasn't got anything, but because he already did. The gift of God was made at the foundation of the earth. He gave us the universe. He gave us himself at the foundation of the earth. When I was sitting in that same chair I sit in now, with everything gone, the blackest moment of my life, the universe was mine. God was mine, and all that he had was mine. She knew it, but I didn't. 
I had to discover it. And being an alcoholic, I had to discover it in my own way and in my own time. God loved me just as much that day as he does now. Just the same. No different. But he never kept me from making mistakes. He's a gentleman. God. He don't intrude where he's not wanted. So, he never kept me from making mistakes. He loved me enough to allow me to make my own mistakes. But I might just sooner run out of my own resources and come back home where I belong. So, my business is to go about his business. And his business become that is not my business, that's his business. Now what is his business that I'm going about? Helping his kids do things they need to have done because I want to. A twelve step call in business, a twelve step call at home, a twelve step call in AA. A twelve step call in play. Just worry about our father's business. That's my business. It's his business to him. And he's done an infinitely better job than I ever did. And I'm most grateful. Now we talked about prayer a little this morning. <clears throat> Wondering why we didn't start these meetings and close them maybe with prayer. And I told you, as far as I'm concerned, this is a prayer. This is a prayer. My life is a prayer. If you'd ask me what's your religion, I would say it's the way I live. That's my religion. Don't make it what I call myself. It's the way I live. That's my religion. And so, that's my business, to go about his business. Because I want to. Now, there are a couple of little things that I learned many, many years ago that get right into this picture. There's an old Upanishad that comes out of India. Most of you scholars know about the Upanishad and the Vedas of India. <laughs> I had a guy down from Springs when we were down there last. He was a Vedantist. And he was telling me what a bunch of butchers we were in AA as far as spiritual things were concerned. And he was telling me that we had to purify our hearts. <laughs> So we would be worthy to see God. We had to purify our hearts. 
no water at all. We do it for free and for fun because we love it. Fascinating. To be good for nothing. This is the freedom of life. Just to be good for nothing. That's not self-robbery. That's for fun. And for free. Now, I said a while ago, in my opinion, the gift of God has made the foundation of the earth. I'm not the first guy that's ever said that. It's written. Fear not, little flock. It's Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. It's Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Don't say you got on it. It is written, take no thought of tomorrow, what you should eat, what you should drink, or wherewithal you should be clothed. You have the Father knows what you have need of for you. It is written, whatsoever you desire when you pray, believe that you have it. And you receive it. Now, how in the world are you going to believe that you got something that you ain't got? How are you going to believe? There's <laughs> a trick to it. You got to know that the gift of God was made the foundation of you. That God's will for you, his child, is fulfillment, peace, and joy. And that every good and perfect gift is from his hand. So, When we recognize this, then we know that what we might pray for is already ours. It's already ours. The gift of God to his kids. No border. Now, lastly, for this session, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm holding the time limit right, right, put nearly on the dot. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new deal for me. <laughs> it's reported in the fellowship. They say, what comes out to tremble? And then they say, Tuesday. <laughs> You know how I'm ending up right on time. The easy way is the right way. The tough way is the wrong way. There's an easy way and a hard way to do this program. The hard way is try to do it yourself. The easy way is to know that you can't. To know that you can't. To recognize the need for help. Now, 
I have never asked God one time in 29 years to keep me sober. I never asked him once. I've thanked him a million times, but I've never asked him once to keep me sober. Because that's not the way I read my book. The way I read my book is to hear the steps we took. When we took them, something happens. When we don't took them, nothing happens. So, I told Father Barney, I said, I've never asked God to keep me sober. He says, why not? I said, I think that's not his business. I think it's my business to do these things, and who's going to take him? And he does it. I don't have to tell him what to do about his business. And you guys tell me what to do about mine. And I do it. Here are the steps I take. I'm sober. And many, many good things have happened in my life, including the disappearance of the related disorders, which I didn't spend five seconds on. Not five seconds did I spend trying to get my wife back or the kids, or my job, or my health or my sanity. And somehow or another, it sort of all fell together. For God's will for you and for me is fulfillment, peace, and joy. Just as God has made the foundations of you, what you came here looking for, the easy way to know that you can. To know that you can. To recognize the need for help. Now, I have never asked God one time in 29 years to keep me sober. I never asked him once. I've thanked him a million times, but I've never asked him once to keep me sober. Because that's not the way I read my book. The way I read my book is just here the steps we took. When we took them, something happens. When we don't took them, nothing happens. So, I told Father Barney, I said, I've never asked God to keep me sober. He says, why not? I said, I think that's not his business. I think it's my business to do these things, and who's going to take him? And he does it. I don't have to tell him what to do about his business. And you guys told me what to do about mine. And I do it. Here are the steps I take. I'm sober. And many, many good things have happened in my life, including the disappearance of the related disorders. Which I didn't spend five seconds on. Not five seconds did I spend trying to get my wife back or the kids or my job or my health or my sanity. And somehow or another, it sort of all fell together. 
So God's will for you and for me is fulfillment, peace, and joy. The gift of God was made the foundation of the earth. What you came here looking for, you came looking with. So we have to find it where it is. And it's right here. And it's an inside job. It's an inside job. Uncovering, discovering, and discarding is alcoholics now. Fascinating way of life. And it gets better for 29 years to my certain knowledge. And I suspect it's going to get better forever. World without end. Amen. <laughs> God bless you all. Thank you. Talked about the fact that everything that we were conditioned to bring was true about life in home, school, and church has had to be reversed since we grew up a little bit. And of course, this includes uh, getting out of our own way. Self-discovery. It includes surrender when we were conditioned to believe that surrender was for the weak. Strong man wins, weak man surrenders. So, we had to run our own lives. We had to win the battle. In this new way of life, we have nothing to win, nothing to prove. And we're not going anyplace. Nothing to win, nothing to prove, and we're not going anyplace. Now, I am either going to run my life and take the consequences thereof, or I'm not going to run it and take the consequences thereof. One of the other of those things I must do. We cannot do both. Again, it's written that you can't serve two masters. Either you claim to the one and despise the other, or vice versa. A house divided against itself can't stand. So either I'm going to run my life and take the consequences thereof, or I'm not going to run it and take the consequences thereof. Middle way. And I can't run mine. As we have said, we had 43 years to run the show. 
which time I was the star of the show and the master ceremony. And after 43 years, I had accomplished failure in every department of life. So I can't run my life. I can't run nothing. Can't run my business, can't run my wife, can't run my kids. Can't run anything. And I know it. I knew it when I got here. I came here knowing that I had lost the battle of life. And I had given it everything I had. I gave it my wife, my kids, our home, my job, my health, my sanity, and my money. And I lost. <laughs> so I can't run my life. It's no, it's no big deal as far as I'm concerned, however. Because I don't need to. Because I've lived for 29 years in total expectancy, guidance, and direction. So, I don't need to run my life. It isn't necessary. Then I can't. And I accept it. Now, the next premise is that God is neither sufficient unto all of my needs, or he is not sufficient unto all of my needs. One or the other. If he is not sufficient unto all my needs, there's nothing to worry about. Because in that case, life is not worth the candle. The sooner it's over, the better. We might as well knock this thing off and go down with the bus and fill it full of liquor and shut up. <laughs> and drink some die. If God is not sufficient and all our needs, the sooner so better. There's nothing to recommend life. So if he is not sufficient, there's nothing to worry about. And if he is sufficient, unto all my needs, there's nothing to worry about. So I got you both ways. <laughs> got you both ways. Because of he is, all I have to do is to act like a kid and prove that I am. And that's written like this. Act as though I am, and I will be, says the Lord. Act as though I am, and I will be. So, that's all I have to do. To act as if it were true, and prove that it, it is true. And that's what we do in this program, Vash. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do because we've already lost. We've already been to human power. The best 
I went to. The priest, the priest in the back. And as we said, to the guy who knew more psychiatry than there is. And every one of them talked to me about willpower back home and stand up and be the man. Every one of them. Because you see, prior to 29 years ago, almost nobody knew anything about alcoholism. The people I went to see, the authorities, did not know anything about alcoholism. And they couldn't help me. And I didn't know anything about alcoholism, and I couldn't help myself. So I'd keep right on drinking until about killed me. Before I could even come here to investigate. Now, I knew that my job and my problem was not the lack of willpower or the lack of backbone or the lack of being able to stand up and be a man. I knew that. I was born with a pitchfork in my hand. I can't remember when I wasn't working. I always worked. <laughs> I was a pretty good athlete in my day. And I can say that without fear of successful contradiction because there's nobody here old enough to remember. And my backbone had never given me the slightest trouble. And you know some of it hasn't yet. My backbone does a hell of a job for me. Everything I have worked as well as my backbone, I've been top shape. <laughs> if you want to make a question on that, talk to me tomorrow about it. So, it isn't backbone. It most certainly isn't willpower. And there is ever a group of people on the face of the earth who has willpower. It's the drunk of the world. Well, we got willpower to burn. <laughs> I can put whistle and canvas on election day for some on Sunday. <laughs> It depended only on how I was walking off the sidewalk, how long it took. Any place in the country. If the need was great, it didn't take very long to get it Every time I hear these earth people talking about backbone, willpower, I want to ask him one question. How many of them ever crawled a mile in the mud after dark just to get a bucket of ice? Far from the course, we're drunk. You know? We got a well-fired bird. And in the standing up and being a man's department, we can give them cards and skates. 
There's ever a bunch of philosophers on the face of the earth. It's the drunks of the world. We have all the attitudes for everybody but us. One of our great assets, one of the things that really endeared us to the non-alcoholic world. We have always known exactly what is wrong with them. And we didn't mind telling them. <laughs> and that's not a good way to win friends and influence people either. We're a great bunch of philosophers. You can go right now into any bar in this part of the country and ask the first drunk that you bump into any question that pops in your head and he'd tell you. <laughs> you wouldn't hammer and stutter. He didn't do and say, I don't know. He'd tell you. Great bunch of philosophy. So, I knew all the time that my problem was not willpower, backbone, standing up to the man, but I didn't know what it was. So, I had to keep right on drinking until I died before I could come here and find out. Now, this isn't any criticism of the doctors, or the preachers, or the priests, or the psychiatrists, because they didn't know. And, and back in those days, they did not know. It's <clears throat> comparatively recent thing that doctors and priests and preachers and psychiatrists, a great percentage of them, have made it their business to find out something about the disease of alcoholism. And they can presently tell us. <laughs> and tell us where we can go for help. But in my day, this was not true. Thank God. There's so much more known about it today than there was then. That many people can find out and come without having to destroy themselves, as some of us did. <coughs> However, Mr. C says to me quite often, supposing I had have known something about Al-Anon back in the days when you were drinking, supposing Al-Anon would have, I have been here, and I was in it, and I would have known a little bit more about how to handle you or how to treat you, not handle me, but how to treat me. Do you think that it would hasten you into society before you came? And I say, I don't, I don't really believe it would. In my case, I don't really believe it would have. Because I am one who certainly could not hear like a deer, and could not see 
and that I could see. As I told you the other day, I read Jack Alexander's article in the Post. In 41 and five years later, I remembered that I'd read it. I was four sheets in the wind when I read it. I remembered only two things about it. They trucked out drunk and didn't drink it. And they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why I said to myself, if I ever lived to get out of this bed, I'll find a And from the decision until now, I haven't had to drink. So I don't know. In my own case, up until my last drunk, it was never my fault that I drank. Up until my last drunk, and I got drunk for 25 years. And I was a periodic for the last ten. And I was physically sober down tonight. Between every two drunks for ten years. And I can look at my record with physically sober eyes for that whole ten years. I lived until my last drunk and it was never my fault that I drank. It was your fault. It was my wife's fault. It was her mother's fault. Now there was a king-sized reason for getting drunk. That mother-in-law of mine. <clears throat> she reminds me of a little story that I picked up from Al Badger in Dallas. Al's gone to the big meeting. He's a hell of a guy. He was about three or four months before me in the program. He was sober he died a year or so ago. And he was a great storyteller, and he told this story. He said there's two drunks who met on the street. And one of them says the other house thing. Oh, he says, not good. Well, he says, that's bad. He says, not so bad. He says, uh, I got married. Well, he says, that's good. He says, not so good. He says, I got my mother-in-law, too. Well, he says, that's bad. He says, not so bad. She's got money. He says, that's good. He says, not so good. She wants the boss every day. He says, that's bad. He says, not so bad. She bought the house. He says, that's good. He says, not so good. The house burned down. But he says, that sure is bad. He says, not bad, brother. He says, she burned too. <laughs> and so that last excuse, you got to go to the board. It's got to burn up. If you, and I have, if you and I have one excuse left, that is still acceptable to us. We have another drunk left. Nobody is going to do the things necessary to obtain and maintain sobriety. If <laughs> there's any way to put this on to anybody else, your mother-in-law or your boss or anybody else, we're not going to do it. 
It's in my own case. I don't remember if I told you this down here or not. I've told it many, many times. But on my next to last drunk, when I went to the kitchen after a glass of buttermilk, Dick and Miss C were sitting in the living room. They heard me let out a bell and heard me hit the floor. Came running out thinking that I was in an alcoholic convulsion, but I wasn't. I was just lying there on the kitchen floor as peaceful as anybody ever saw. Doing nothing. But they couldn't wake me up. And they tell me I was a peculiar color. I was blue. <laughs> they got all exercised. And called the oxygen squad. And they came down. And after a while, they woke me up. And, uh... They told me that to all intents and purposes I'd been dead. That they'd had a hell of a time bringing me to and nobody would ever bring me to again under those circumstances. And they told me if they were me, they wouldn't do that anymore. Remember I told you that. But I did it again. But the thing I want to tell about this time is this. That about 24, 36 hours after they brought me to, I was able to get the old little bathrobe on and start walking off this joke. Now that's the way I had to sober up. I never heard of an easy way to sober up until I got to alcoholics numbers. The only way I could sober up was to die until I could live. And I did it mainly walking. Now I've got the old bathrobe on and I'm walking up and down the living room floor, back and forth, sweating, freezing, shaking, dying, and walking. Let's see what's that little fireplace. And I was walking away from her. And she said, Chuck, don't you think you might get a little help if you'd read the book Alcoholics Anonymous? <coughs> And I turned on her like a line. I said, you, my very own wife, suggesting that I read a book written by a bunch of drunks. I have read all the good books with the good authors. And you want me why I think you wound me deeply. Now, I'd just been dead 48 hours before, and she wounded me deeply. And I polished her off completely by saying, and besides, I can write a better book than that myself. Now, that was just 90 days before I came calling into this program. Just 90 days. I've been getting drunk for 25 years. And she wounded me deeply. I suggested that I read this book. So I doubt very much that there was any way that I could have gotten here except the way I came. And that was to totally burn up. Which happened to me in the last time out. Now, many times people here, a guy like me, or some of you, who had everything 
very weak. And uh, he had also determined that she'd never have to drink of liquor in her life. And for post-operative care, he prescribed a little brandy. And they started giving this a little brandy. And he said on the third day after the operation, she stole the keys from the nurse. She got into the brandy. And she never had to in her life up until that time. So it's not how much or how long, it's what it does to it, you know. And you can either drink water or you can't. And if you can't, this program is for you. And the quicker you embrace it, and the quicker you do something about it, the better. Because alcoholism gets worse, never better. In its manifestation. I'm actually 29 years worse off so far as successfully drinking liquor is concerned than it was when I got here. And I know it. <clears throat> I know it. And I don't have to take it as proof. But I've, because I have been close to and active in this program the whole time I've been here. And when you're close to and active in, all you got to do is keep your eyes open. Your friends are forever taking a drink for you. They don't have to take it. <clears throat> they do your experimenting for you if you keep your eyes open. Now, there are two or three little things that I want to add to this before I take off. <clears throat> when I first got here, I was quite sure that people who have not suffered as much as I had suffered. Couldn't possibly love this thing as much as I did. And I felt a little bit sorry for those who came and hadn't had some of the things happen to them that I had happened to me. Because I knew that they didn't, you know, they couldn't feel this thing like I did. And then I got to working with a Debbie Priest. Never been kicked out of anything. Was still serving the altar. But he was a priest. A Debbie at that. And it gradually dawned on me that I was a drunken nobody. Nobody gave a damn whether I drank or didn't. Half a dozen people. But it tells me, priest, how much they must suffer in doing a bad job. And I got to work with my banker. And he was one of the biggest bankers in the country. He was an internationally known banker. He taught banking. He was a dollar a year man with the United States government for quite a while. 
can pick out anything. You belong to everything in town. Never been kicked out of his home. Lived in three months place. You only get in there and out one way. <laughs> no cross streets, no out to the other end. You go in and out the same way. Friday. There's where he lived. And he'd never been kicked out of home. Never been kicked out of anything. But he couldn't drink well. And he wasn't doing his job well. And he came to our father's nose. And when the time came, when he felt that he had to start trying to give this thing away, he went to his committee. He was chairman of the executive committee of one of the biggest banks in the city. And he went to the committee and he said, look, I have an alcoholic problem. And I have found a way that might let me live for the rest of my life without drinking. And one of the things we must do is to work with alcoholics. And he says, I'm going to have to start working a bit with alcoholics because they've worked with me. And I'm sober. And I'm going to have to talk a bit. And people might know. And it might be damaging to this bank. And so I'm submitting my recognition to this committee right now for your action. And they said, go to your office. And he went out. And he was almost to his office when they opened the door and called him back. And they says, Whatever you feel that is necessary for you to do, do. And we're with you a thousand percent. Isn't that beautiful? And this was one of the most humble men I've ever known in my entire life. Up until the time he died, he's the guy that allowed me to buy my business. Beautiful, beautiful man. And we used to sit between Christmas and New Year's every year and have lunch in the California club, which he belonged to. I didn't. <laughs> but he did. He belonged to everything. And he'd sit there and tell me that, uh, that lunch with me between Christmas and New Year's every year was the high point in each year. And I'd sit there and bawl like a baby. Fabulous man. Never had kicked out anything. But how he must have hurt. How he must have hurt. So I had to come to see. That it's not possible for you and for me to decide how much somebody else is hurt. We don't know what's going on inside of somebody else. And they might have hurt ten times, a hundred times worse than I. 
I was sort of pity him. <laughs> because he couldn't love this thing as much as I did. Also, I knew very well that when people didn't practice these principles like I thought they should, they couldn't take over. Our book tells us we seek to fight anything and anybody or everything and everybody. We cease to fight. We had an old boy in our group in Beverly Hills. That fought everything and everybody. He was a year and a half sober when I got here. And he's a year and a half older than I am in the program right now. And he never did quit fighting. He still fights and he's practically a dead man. Now, back in the old days, I used to try to make him speak to me. And he wouldn't do it. Maybe a whole year ago by we were in the same group. And I couldn't make him speak to me. And I do sort of stuff like this. I'd walk up to him in the middle of the uh, talking to one man. Because he, he has to, you know, he has to do something. But he did. He turned off his head and walked off without even finishing the sentence. I couldn't make him talk to me. And when I got my 21st birthday, he gave it to me. And this roughneck kissed me on the neck when he gave me my birthday. He may be one of the guys that loves me the most in this town. So, we have to come to see that it isn't where you are, it's where you came from. Now, he just might have grown ten times more than I did in this program. But he didn't start even with me. Started down the ladder ways. And so we have to come see these things. And it makes for much, much, much more beautiful living experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, there's a little verse in the book which I won't quote because doctors don't want me to. But it says this. It says, Blessed is he who condemneth not himself, and that which he alloweth. Blessed is he who condemneth not himself, and that which he alloweth. What does that mean? I believe it means that if you can do a thing without condemning yourself, it's not so bad. But if you condemn yourself for it, you better jolly well quit it or kill you. 
And I think this is one of the greatest differences between a a good old Saturday night drunk and alcoholic. Because you and I condemned ourselves from the beginning. Now, if we were raised in a religion that did not condemn us for moderate drinking, maybe we didn't condemn ourselves for moderate drinking, but we condemned ourselves for a bad performance. So, from the beginning, we condemned ourselves. I knew better than drink before I ever took my first drink. I condemned myself from the first drink. And as time went on, the condemnation became hatred. And we ended up hating our guts. We can hardly look in the mirror to see. Because of self-loathing. Blessed is he who condemneth not himself and that which he alloweth. Now again, this tells us this, that there's no particular way that you can classify so-called sin amongst those people around you. Many people can do things that I can't do, and don't, don't condemn themselves at all. Personally, I could do things, many things, five years ago that today I cannot do. And so it depends on where we are, what we can do, and what we have to get rid of. And it's a continuous process. Because the higher we go, the more we have to discard. And the more we discard, the freer we become. It's amazing. There's no such thing as the meaning of a word. Now this blows my mind. And the way it came about, I got to thinking some time back that the first two and a half pages in chapter five, which add up to end the scene to about 450 or 60 words. That's all there is. And uh, I never counted them, but I think that's about it. And I have gone through that not less than 25 and probably nearer 30,000 times in 29 years. Let's see on the side one. Please turn your cassette over now and continue listening on the other side. Thank you. That must be the last meeting on the face of the earth. They're always new.
I hear them, they're always new. Every time I read them. Every time I talk about them, they're new. The words remain in a question that we don't. And it depends entirely where we are, like the meaning. And they will always be more meaningful. Thank you. 